Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast where men have the right to remain silent. This week we have Lindsay, Helen, Ambria, Laura. Woo-hoo! We are also joined by special guest Misha Barner, a member of the National Lawyers Guild, and Emma Catterin, a member of DSA Legal. Woo-hoo! Yeah, welcome to Season of the Bitch! Yay! Yeah, thank you so much for being on this podcast today. <laughs> so, Emma, could you give us some information on DSA Legal and what you do with them? Yeah, so DSA Legal started a few months ago, and... Basically, what it is, is a working group of the Democratic Socialists of America comprised of all sorts of legal professionals, so not just lawyers, but also law students and paralegals and other legal workers. And we all come together to do a few things to support DSA. We provide legal and policy support for people. So like, for example, uh, we've been helping chapters who are interested in incorporating themselves under 501c4 status. We also like to discuss with each other as well as provide other people with information about how the law and the legal profession help to maintain the system of capitalism and also other oppressive systems like patriarchy and white supremacy. And one thing that's really important to us is we try to, in the way that all movement lawyers should, but unfortunately a lot do do not, we try to really just set ourselves up as giving advice rather than trying to drive DSA's policy decisions and work because we really believe in democracy and we really think that everyone in DSA should be deciding what we do and do not do and that our role is just to help out and provide information. That's awesome. So Misha, could you tell us a little bit about the National Lawyers Guild and your role in it? Sure. So the National Lawyers Guild has been around since the 1930s. It was the first integrated bar association, and it currently is a nationwide organization of lawyers, law students, legal workers, and we're also the only bar association that has jailhouse lawyers as members, so individuals who are incarcerated and um, practicing law on the inside. Oh, wow. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And it's basically a, a home for progressive left radical folks in the law. And you can see us, our work in a lot of different ways. If you've ever been to a protest and seen individuals wearing bright green hats that say say Legal Observer, that's the National Lawyers Guild. Legal Mm -hmm. observing is something that we do at First Amendment protected activity and protests and direct action, basically to act as a neutral observer of law enforcement and state activity to act as a deterrent for unconstitutional or violent activity and also provide like an on the ground same time record of what's happening in case there are arrests or violence from the police or later court cases. And then National Lawyers Guild lawyers and other people in the NLG do all sorts of things. There are civil rights lawyers, public defenders, legal aid folks, and basically people are united around the concept that in the law, human rights should be valued over property rights. Mm. So it's a pretty expansive organization. I've been involved since I was in law school. Probably the only thing that kept me in law school, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. I believe it. (laughs) And I've had a few different positions. I've been on the national board, most recently as co-chair of the anti-racism committee. And currently I'm the contact for Tennessee. So If anybody in Tennessee wants to get involved with the National Lawyers Guild or has questions, people reach out to me. And so I usually field questions about legal observing and jail support around direct action. But anybody who wants to get involved in the state of Tennessee can reach out to me. And that's sort of my role. That's so amazing. I was just aggressively nodding my head the entire time we were talking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So what are your particular areas of practice? This question goes to both of you. And is this the area that you wanted to practice when you started law school or started thinking about law school? 
So prior to law school, I did work with two organizations, Black and Pink and Sylvia Rivera Law Project, um, about the rights of incarcerated people. Uh, Particularly, it was a lot of Eighth Amendment work. For those not familiar, the Eighth Amendment of the Bill of Rights of the Constitution has been interpreted as providing people in prisons with the right to medical care provided by the state. And of course, that right is oftentimes not enforced. So uh, a lot of the time I was trying to get that right to be enforced. That work is it's really important. NLG does a lot of great stuff with that. And hats off to the people who can do it. It was really intense, though, emotionally, you know. And so I did go to law school thinking that would be what I would do just because I had experience in it. But I got into my first semester of classes and I did, you know, criminal law and I mean, criminal law, anyone, any law student can tell you criminal law is like, it's so traumatic. Like every day of that class is traumatic as hell. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, today we're going to read about like a serial rapist and the judge is going to go into unnecessary detail about this stuff. And you're just like, oh, Jesus, why? So I was like, maybe this isn't like the type of stuff I should be doing. But I also took contracts. And while the rest of my classmates were groaning about it, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And particularly, we read some great cases about rent-to-own agreements. Mm. And where I grew up in Virginia, there were tons of these predatory finance places, rent-to-own furniture and payday loans and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was like, wow, this is like something I'm really interested in. And so my second semester, I interned doing consumer finance work, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Hmm. Cool. What about you, Misha? Well, I went to law school extraordinarily naive. Um, I had never met a lawyer before. I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. But when I was an undergrad, I got involved with a poli-sci professor who did international human rights law. And so I did some work with him around internally displaced persons, other human rights stuff. And I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. And I was, like I said, really naive and also really not politically aware. I really had no idea that I was operating under like this white savior complex sort of mentality. Um, Mm. I wasn't, I didn't really think through what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. I just knew that I wanted to help people, I guess. And I thought that Mm. this was the way. (laughs) And then I went to law school and I was like, oh, I made a huge mistake. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Everybody here. That's not helping anyone at all. Like, everybody is terrible. Nobody gives (laughs) shit about their fellow human. Um, And then I took criminal procedure. And like Emma said, it's a really traumatizing class. And Mm. I had no idea that human rights abuses were happening at that level every day in the United States in our criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. And was just like, oh, I think that this is actually what I want to do. And so through that, I got involved in capital defense work. I mean, it's... Obviously, a bit more complicated of a story, but I did capital defense stuff through law school and ended up finding a job doing that, but didn't stick with it because the office I was working at was extremely toxic and I could get into more of that, not on a podcast. (laughs) Can you, uh, do you think you could explain what capital defense is? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's okay. um, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Capital punishment is another term for the death penalty. And Mm -hmm. so capital defense is being a criminal defense attorney, specifically defending people who are either sentenced to death or are facing the death penalty. And Mm -hmm. so I primarily worked with people who had already been sentenced to death and were in various stages of appeal. And it was through that work that I sort of just learned more about prisons. And through that, I became a prison abolitionist and now, <laughs> and now my job is I'm a civil rights attorney who works with a lot of people who are inside doing some of the Eighth Amendment cases that Emma mentioned. 
I also do um, employment discrimination. We have some sexual harassment cases, uh, which has been really interesting in, in this current social time. Mm. We have some police brutality cases, protester cases. So broadly, civil rights is what I do. That's fantastic. Amazing. <laughs> so I think it's pretty clear how like civil rights work and like you know, prison abolition and criminal defense kind of align with progressive ideals. Um, but I think a lot of people might have a bit more difficulty figuring out how, I guess, consumer finance law is like a progressive political issue. And I know, Emma, that you mentioned, you know, aggressive like payday lending and uh, rent to own furniture and things like that. Um, so I'm just wondering about, I guess, how you kind of embody your political ideals through your work or if you can't really do it through your work, because I know it's not possible for everybody to be political at work, you know, how, how you manifest it outside of work. So I've mostly been lucky enough to be able to be political in my work. And I mean, if you give me an inch, I'll go a mile with that sort of stuff. <laughs> like I worked for an organization, legal services, for those who aren't aware, some legal services can be political. What is sort of the deciding factor is whether or not they get funding through the government, through what's called the Legal Services Corporation. The organization I worked for did not receive funding from them. So I would just talk to my clients about like, hey, this isn't really your fault. It's more capitalism's fault. So let's talk about that. But I have worked. There's one job in particular. Uh, I worked at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is the federal agency, which, well, it's kind of past tense at this point, regulated <laughs> consumer finance I'm very bitter about this, sorry. <laughs> no, good, get it out. <laughs> and when you work for a federal, the CFPB is technically civil law enforcement, federal law enforcement. So I had to obey this thing called the Hatch Act, which didn't allow me to, you know, talk about my work, didn't allow me to take political positions on the issues that I was working on or any of the companies that I was dealing with. And my way of working in that sort of framework was to really sort of dive into DSA's Medicare for All campaign and to sort of use my legal skills in that capacity as well in a more sort of directly political way. Though I do think the work of the CFPB was really important for advancing that kind of Equality, I think this is kind of like a left catch-all phrase, but it's a diversity of tactics thing. Like, you know, I really, I actually really think that we need more leftists who are willing to go into things like federal government and institutions. Hmm. Not all of them, <laughs> but there are some that I think that I'm like, yeah, we should be there. And there are lots of people there. They're just not allowed, of course, to be vocal. Absolutely. So everybody has heard the stereotype that lawyers are sleazy or unscrupulous. And um, I think most of us who have worked in law for any period of time have met lawyers who fit the definition. Mm. Um, but they usually I wear think... bow ties, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they like, have a monocle. No, I'm <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this is the worst interruption I've ever performed. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I think it fits here. <laughs> I mean, everybody's got a good mental picture of the guy now. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think on the left, there's an implication that because lawyers work within the system and because the system needs an overhaul, there can be little meaningful work conducted by lawyers under the current system. So, of course, this question goes to both of you again. Um, so, yeah, what do you what do you think about um, the idea that there is little meaningful work that can be conducted in the current system? Hmm. Um, <laughs> I think it's honestly a fair point that it's hard to do meaningful work in this system and 
I was thinking a lot during the last question about being a civil rights attorney and what that means in a system where laws are actually just set up to help the powerful and to keep the status quo and not actually to provide justice. You know, I appreciate the good that I'm able to do with my job and I appreciate the people I'm able to help and ways certain of my ideals can be advanced, but I don't have any illusions that I'm overhauling a system. You know, nothing I do is systemic. And I mean, even when it's like a class action lawsuit, you know, I often think about some of my cases, especially with individuals who are on the inside and we're working to get them better health care or to get compensated for, for example, having a heart attack in their cell. Um, You know, it can be really difficult because, of course, I want to get that person compensated. I want their voice to be heard, but also they're still going to be in prison you know, at the end of the day. And I think that's a difficult thing to sort of deal with on a day-to-day basis. On the other hand, I agree that I think it's meaningful to have radicals and progressive and progressives and leftists in the law. I think that we can introduce a different narrative. I think that there's certainly roles in the movement for lawyers. And also, I think one way I think about my job, to be totally honest, is I have to pay rent and I have to eat food. And this is a way that I can do that without compromising my ideals. But and also, you know, trying to do things that are positive for the world, but also being realistic about the fact that, like, I need I need to have a job that I make money at, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. I guess the only thing I would add, I agree with all of that. The only thing I would sort of add is... You know, I'm a I'm a Marxist, so when I'm thinking about how we make progressive change in the world, the only, you know, class history is the history of class struggle. And so we have to think about what is the class that makes change. And even the poorly paid legal people are part or lawyers at least are part of a professional class rather than the working class. But that's that's the sort of the broad scope. And in terms of individual lawyers, there have been lots of, you know, really awesome lawyers throughout history. And at the very least, lawyers who did revolutionary things, even if you have mixed feelings about them. And just to name a few, it's like Fidel Castro and Lenin and Maurice Bishop, who is the revolutionary leader of Grenada, and uh, Polly Murray, who was a very prominent civil rights lawyer here in the United States during the fight against Jim Crow segregation and uh, was also a Marxist. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good and interesting way to think about it. And in a similar vein, and I know we've kind like we're kind of asking versions of the same question, but I I was curious as lawyers, how do you approach legal matters as leftists? Like as I would consider both of you leftist revolutionaries, even or like you know revolutionary lawyers, and even if you're not in that proletariat class, how do you bring that into your work? What does a revolutionary lawyer look like? Do you try and keep people out of the carceral state, um, or do you approach it more from the idea of giving as many rights to the powerless? I mean, I think both those things are good. I think there are lots of different ways that a leftist or like myself as an anarchist can approach the law. I guess like when you say the idea of giving as many rights to the powerless as possible, I think about it as trying to take this extremely horizontal system, Mm. this extremely, or I'm sorry, this extremely hierarchical system and make it horizontal and make Mm things more accessible to people. One thing that I do outside of my job is I help start a jail support collective in Nashville where I live. And the whole idea is it is actually trying to keep people out of the carceral state, trying to keep people out of the surveillance state, and also trying to show people that there's all these things we can do that people think only lawyers can do. And actually, there's a lot of ways a person can advocate for themselves, even within this brutal system. And so one way I think about my job is like taking this like fiercely guarded knowledge and trying to spread it as wide as possible because I think one way we can deconstruct the system is by taking power away from it. And mm. so, you know, I also think of it as like I want to work toward a world where like my job doesn't exist, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really interesting to hear kind of like juxtaposed with what Emma was saying, you know, sort of about 
the legitimate distrust of the professional class, just for that very reason, you know, right? When it's your profession, you want to guard that information as something that belongs to you as an expert mm -hmm. instead of making it something that's available to everyone. And, and that's why you're kind of working against your own interests if you mm -hmm. are trying to make your expertise something that is accessible to the public openly and freely so i don't know yeah thank you guys for these stimulating ideas <laughs> yeah so i have i have kind of the other side of the left perspective i am not an anarchist <laughs> i i was really one of the one of my favorite things that i ran my first year of law school was this piece by Catherine McKinnon, and it was just an excerpt of hers from uh, her book, Towards a Feminist Theory of the State. And what she talks about in that, and it kind of, she interprets a lot of Marxist ideas about the state and about this idea of what's called the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is kind of this scary term you know, people think when they think dictatorship, they think like one guy ruling over everyone else. Uh, but what that term actually just means is like a government by and for the working class that remakes the laws so that the laws protect the people and, you know, prevent the rich from wielding power. And with Catherine McKinnon's idea, it's she took the same thing, except made it about patriarchy, about how can we look at the way that our state has been constructed and rather than simply deconstructing it or trying to mitigate the harms, which those are important things to do, of course, but at the end of the day, we're just mitigating harms. Like, how can we end it? How can we stop this from ever happening? And she thinks the answer, and I think the answer is to take control of the state and to create the sort of legal system that we want and that promotes values, actual values of equality and socialism rather than oppression and capitalism. Now, it should be noted that Catherine McKinnon's ideas of how to actually do that can be very problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, she tried to criminalize pornography along with Andrea Jorkin, which was a bad idea <laughs> for, a whole, for a whole host <laughs> of reasons. I think a very well-intentioned idea because the pornography industry is really exploitative, of course, but it's not something you deal with by using what is a patriarchal carceral system. So... That was kind of disappointing to see that this person who's like, oh, yeah, we need to create a feminist state. And then mm. she just wound up relying on the patriarchal state. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm kind of disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Just a little. Uh, <laughs> she would also, she, she wrote a piece last year on the 20th anniversary of Towards Feminist Theory of the State, or 30th. I think, yeah, 30th anniversary, where she basically said, whatever haters, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so that's how she feels. So don't don't take my word for it. Go ahead and read her stuff. Maybe she'll change your mind. <laughs> so this week we read your article, Emma, um, Triggered by Something, which talks about harm, the law and progressive movements. Um, so you talk about how, while we like to understand that the law is construed so as to minimize harm, the law doesn't often do this as well as we would like it to or well at all in many cases. Um, so personally, <laughs> I was drawn to the law because I really want to help mitigate the harm that people experience under the system we currently live under. And I know that a lot of people are, you know, drawn to the law for the same reasons. So Misha, is minimizing harm a focal point of your practice? Um, do you consider it in those terms? Or, I mean, mm. I know with the kind of work you do, you clearly seek to minimize harm, but I don't know if that is like the goal you strive for. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I think that minimizing harm for individuals who have been harmed by the system and mm. to offer some kind of redress for the harm that they 
have suffered is a focal point of my practice. And also, I think it's a way of, I mean, it depends on the case I'm working on and the particular, like, sort of smaller field of that case. Mm -hmm. But, for example, like, the sexual harassment cases, in that, I think of it as I'm offering this woman, I mean, in my, the, the cases that I have, it's all been women, a way to try to gain some closure from a really horrible thing that happened, a way to be compensated and a way to hold that person accountable for mm. what happened. So I think minimizing harm and then also in a way trying to heal from harm. Yeah. But there are extreme limitations to that. And I think one of them is that it's a really individualized focused, right? So mm -hmm. we're a case, a lot of these cases I'm working on, they're about individual people who went through these individual acts of harm perpetrated by other individuals. And then we kind of just try to keep it focused in that little one small world um, instead of being like, how is this all a symptom of the patriarchy and rape culture and all these other oppressive forces that are operating on us at all times. So another thing that I try to do in my practice, and I'm limited somewhat because I'm an associate and I kind of have to do what my boss tells me, but I try to connect individuals that I work with, with movements and organizing happening around the issue that they're dealing with, like in their communities. So an example is for sexual harassment, recently a community group started in New Orleans. And interestingly enough, I live in Tennessee, but most of my practice is in Louisiana. And so this group Medusa recently started, and it's a group of people who are in the service industry organizing against sexual violence. And so, mm. you know, when I have individuals who are in the service industry who have faced this, I'm like, here's this group, you know, you don't have to, like... And I recognize since I'm your lawyer, there's sort of a power dynamic, but you don't have to do this at all. And it's not going to affect my representation. But this might be, a, you know, if you want to keep working on this and be involved in other people who are fighting it, like, here's an option for you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I guess I guess kind of in a nutshell, the system doesn't necessarily provide <laughs> the remedies that people need or the recourse that that would actually fix the problem altogether. But mm -hmm. Because of your connections, you're able to, I mean, of course, get people individual help, but also connect them with larger movements that will ultimately, hopefully, address the problem from the root. Yes. You know, when Emma talked about the fact that only the proletariat can get us free, I mean, I also think of it in a similar way in that we're not going to get revolutionary change from lawyers or cases it's going to be from the people and so to the extent that i can connect people with that kind of work and to and to know that it doesn't actually have anything to do with me and and you know what i can offer i think that's a really like positive thing that i can offer in my role as a lawyer mm. that's great emma at the beginning of the article uh triggered by something you quote Audre Lorde, who talks about uh, black women in a class that Audre Lorde taught. Um, and these women had done lots of important work, but they hadn't really done much work amongst themselves, only against external forces that were, you know, harming and oppressing them. Because to them, the enemy was always outside, she said. Um, so you go on to talk about how Audre Lorde wrote a letter to a woman who had hurt her and whom she had been avoiding getting... Uh, and in this letter, she got very vulnerable with this woman about the kind of hurt she caused. Um, and you talk about how that kind of direct, gentle confrontation with those who harm us is really important within the movement. And I think we kind of touched on this in a roundabout way in our episode on kindness, where we talk about calling in or directly but privately confronting comrades about things that they've done that have hurt us. And obviously, I agree that addressing harm directly with our comrades should be the first step in handling issues within our respective movements. But I'm wondering what challenges you've had with this or what challenges you see with this. And do you have any other suggestions for dealing with harm when the law fails us? I was thinking maybe we could just go over the the court case that I talk about in that blog post. It's, um, it's a case called Thing v. La Chusa. And in the case, this child, Lachusa, 
or I'm sorry, this this man, Lachusa, runs over this child with his car, and uh, the plaintiff's daughter was there as well, and she ran home and told the plaintiff, the mother of the child who was hit, and they both ran over to the scene of the accident, and her son was, you know, covered in blood and unconscious and right next to this car, and she thought he was dead, and, and understandably freaked out about it. Uh, luckily, he did survive the accident after extensive hospitalization, but it was, you know, this incredibly traumatizing event. Mm-hmm. And essentially, in tort law, the sort of law where you sue people for for harms that have been done to you, the U.S. law does recognize emotional harm, but it's really narrow. It's to a very small range And there's this whole idea that emotional harm has to be parasitic, that you have to come up with this physical harm to attach it to, otherwise it's not legitimate. And so the court ruled against this mom in uh, this case because she had not been at the scene of the accident at the time it had occurred. That was essentially... They decided what the rule should be is you can only be emotionally traumatized by something if you watch it go down, if you see every single sort of part of it. And you have this really pithy quote of the court that I think sums up sort of the ways that we think about harm, both in the legal system and beyond, that emotional trauma is an unavoidable aspect of the human condition. Um, That's so fucked up. (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah, no, it is totally. (laughs) I think all of us in the United States or people who just grew up in a capitalist society in general have been conditioned to believe us. Like, for example, that's why there's such a venomous reaction to the idea of safe spaces. Mm. And, you know, it's funny when you think about this outside of like the context of like, you know, whatever you're specific experiences have been with safe spaces or whatever when you're just thinking about it in the abstract it's kind of it's it's pretty silly to oppose it i mean why would you be against people wanting to be in a space that's safe or Mm -hmm. or even even if it is just feeling safe why would you be against that Um, Uh, i'm offended by safety (laughs) so And if I can't feel safe, no one can. <laughs> well, I, that's it. That that really mm-hmm. is it. It's right, this right. idea that such dehumanizing treatment, you know, is this unavoidable aspect of the human condition. And not only does that, you know, create these attitudes of, well, I had to go through this, so you should have to go through it too. But it also absolves all these systems of power that are oftentimes responsible for the for the harms we experience, like capitalism and patriarchy and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this isn't just for political things like safe spaces, but it's uh, something we internalize into our personal relationships as well. And I mean, I've certainly been guilty before of dismissing someone's feelings under the auspice of like, well, they're just, they, they just always act this way, you know? And mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's a lazy way to get around having to address harm. Even if that person really is sort of, you know, worst case scenario being manipulative or, or what have you. You're still not addressing that actual issue, the the actual issue of whether there is harm that has been done or not. Right. Brutal. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So like many professions within the quote unquote professional class, um, these fields seem to be largely dominated by cis men, often older men, you know, from a generation where Like, that's what men did. Do you feel that gender dynamics play a role in how you exist as a lawyer? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a leading question. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I'm not, like, an unbiased person in the world. (laughs) Nobody is. Yes. So, like, obviously, this is a thing. I don't even know where to start. Uh, (laughs) 
well, you know, let's just start with the United States was actually one of the the first places in the modern sense to have women attorneys, but like with many sort of issues of progressive rights, things like gay rights or marijuana laws are sort of modern examples of this. Uh, with the federalist system, it's very state by state. And so there were still states that allowed that barred women from practicing, from taking the bar in the state and practicing law up until 1971. Mm. Whoa. <laughs> God. Yeah. So this is it's really important to emphasize how recent this change has been that have a decent amount of women attorneys in terms of like law students and the new generation of attorneys. We've almost hit gender parity. I think for law students, it's like something like 47% of law students are women. But of course, we still have to deal with all of these older men. And of course, like, while there are now a decent amount of women in the profession, they're usually not in high up positions of power. They're not, mm. you know, the partners of firms or what have you. And there's also just, I think part of this is the particular field of the law I'm interested in and I do work with. So, you know, I'm, I do this consumer finance law and uh, I'm usually dealing with, you know, banks, payday loans, auto loans, and the lawyers kind of tend to emulate the clients. So they're kind of what you would expect in terms of like finance bros and Wall Street dudes. Like, mm. so, and I've gotten to, I've, I've had all sorts of, you know, uh, I guess you would call them microaggressions to me while I've been in the court in front of a judge, things like correcting my math when actually they were doing the math wrong, but uh, <laughs> insisting that they were the ones who understood how the math was. And uh, I literally had one lawyer, without telling me, cross it out on a settlement agreement we had come up with and rewrite something else in, which, by the way, is super illegal. <laughs> totally not allowed to change a settlement agreement after you finish it. Very bad. And then, of course, also just the sort of sexual harassment stuff you would expect. There's this one lawyer who I dealt with in the courts a lot who would always, like, touch me. Oh, yeah. Just like, why are you touching me, bro? Like, stop and then why are you touching you know, me bro <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's like you know the, and, and in those sort of situations you know it's I guess I feel a little bit more empowered to be like don't touch me like what are you doing but then it gets more complicated when you know I do have clients all my pretty much all of my clients are working class people and usually people who've been through some significant hardship recently, like a medical issue or something like that. And, you know, a lot of them are men and some of them also sexually harass me and navigating mm -hmm. that space mm. and that power dynamic is a, is a lot more complicated and something I still mm. kind of struggle with. Of course. Yeah. As a paralegal, I've actually, I've had trouble with, old men attorneys before mm -hmm. I know like one attorney joked with me about like the me too movement and was like saying, or he, he called it a fad. Oh, good. Said he hoped it would blow over. And he's like, I hope you don't, you know, come out, you know, talking about stuff I've done. And I'm like, oh, God, just like consider your behavior and think <laughs> about whether there's something I could complain about. And if there is change <laughs> behavior, <laughs> fortunately, like he has a nice. policy against, you know, touching his employees at all, which is, very respectable, but like the fact that he felt comfortable joking with me about yeah, it. Right. It was like, it was so uncomfortable. And he, he, he talked about it. I mean, he brought it up apropos of nothing several mm -hmm. times. Ew. Um, yeah. So that's one person I, I, you know, don't want to work for again. But I mean, even as a legal professional, not quite a lawyer, I have had my fair share of trouble with old male attorneys. <laughs> Yeah, what men are the worst. <laughs> 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 I, I well, I feel like I've had an interesting experience. Like, 
I'm somebody who was assigned female at birth and transitioned during the time that, like, after I got licensed to practice law, and Mm -hmm. I'm non-binary. So navigating so i mean i also endured a great deal of sexual harassment and uh gaslighting and tokenizing when i presented more femme or female i mean i don't think i have anything new to share on that besides it's a really fucking tough world out there and we all know it Mm -hmm. but now trying to navigate being non-binary has been in a huge professional difficulty i don't know that i really have anything like smart or groundbreaking to say about it, just that it's um, really exhausting to not feel seen and to try to figure out like, what clothes do I wear? And, you know, what do I do when I go to court? And and the way that I've dealt with it is pretty much by going undercover. And since I've been on testosterone for a few years now, you know, trying to present more masculine and just trying to have my gender be a non-issue. But it's difficult. And I've, I have tried to reach out to like other lawyers who are non-binary to like discuss our experiences and talk about ways of maybe maneuvering in a way that feels like more empowering or safer. And I've not really found that. And I've had a lot of lawyers be like, you just have to basically choose a side. And <laughs> oh, my God. oh, my God. Yeah, I'm thinking about one person in particular that I went to law school with who was like, you know, I would be non-binary, but it's really unprofessional. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, it's totally God. a choice. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> team boy uh, or team girl? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like there's – I'm sorry. I, I just want to say I feel like that also has to do with this idea of, like, loyalty to your gender. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we have to figure out whose side you're on, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, and it determines how we treat you. I mean – and of course, I've had the experience of being treated better when people think I'm a man because of all the things that were just talked about. Men are smarter and better lawyers. Right. <laughs> right. <Of> <laughs> uh, I mean, is there anything that us plebes can do in terms of like supporting non-binary folks in the in the professional setting? Like, even if we're not in the space of being lawyers, like what? Mm. Like, is there anything that we can do to help change that culture, that dynamic of not being seen? Hmm. That's a really kind question. I mean, I think the biggest thing is just treating people respectfully and using the right pronouns and words, however people want to be described and addressed. And also, like, correcting other folks and standing up for people so that it doesn't always have to be, you know, that person kind of saying, like, hey, guys, remember how, you know, I don't use she, her Right. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. I mean, I think it's going to be a long time before that's seen as something acceptable in this field. I think it's a really conservative field, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just frustrating. And I'm sorry that anyone has to deal with that. Absolutely. Because <laughs> uh, people are fucking dumb. Okay. <laughs> there have been literal books written on why people shouldn't go to law school anymore and how oversaturated the field is and particularly how going to law school for the quote right reasons aka not going into corporate law or trying to defend people who need defending etc can leave people in debt forever and those jobs are really hard to come by all that being said the two of you have made it happen um, and we also obviously have a lawyer in training on this show what, what? <laughs> so what advice do y'all have for people thinking about law school or people in law school about their prospects of doing good work once they graduate? Can I, can I jump in on this and, and sort of expand the question a little bit? Yeah. Um, related to what Laura's talking about, I've heard, especially in elite circles, that it's like, quote unquote, not worth it to go to law school if you don't get into like a top whatever number school um and if if people are interested in using a law degree to do good how much does it actually matter where they go to school and as sort of a related question i know we're kind of piling on here but do you guys have any (laughs) thoughts about making law as an academic practice more democratic and available that's a lot of questions (laughs) (laughs) so I wrote, I have a blog, which we referenced earlier, called Habeas Quaestus, which is the Latin for bring on the prophet. It's the 
to pun on habeas corpus. Anyways, um, <laughs> super nerdy. And I wrote a blog post about this, particularly. I'm a transgender woman. Uh, we have double transgender guests uh, this <laughs> go around. And a lot of people ask me about this famous essay that Dean Spade wrote, or Dean Spade as uh, this famous trans legal scholar, and he argues that people shouldn't go to law school. And I wrote this whole post being like, no, that's wrong. Uh, people <laughs> should go to law school, especially the type of people who are going to read Dean Spade. <laughs> like, if Dean, if Dean Spade were, like, you know, distributing that article in some, like, prep school to every guy wearing a polo shirt, I would be down. I'd be like, yes, <laughs> do your thing. But, no, we, we need more. Obviously, it's requires a very particular skill set and being willing and able to put up with a lot of bullshit, um, a lot of mm -hmm. respectability politics stuff. But I think it's definitely something that people shouldn't shut themselves off from considering if you're a leftist. I think you can do a lot of good and with a legal degree and sort of more importantly and sort of what I call Dean Speed out for a little bit is he makes this whole statement about how you don't need a legal degree to do legal work. And I'm like, well, you know, I've been doing legal work without a legal degree and getting paid nearly nothing to do it. And mm -hmm. for people, for marginalized people who are looking for a way to get a living wage and a sustainable income, I think it's totally legitimate to pursue law school. It is obviously a scam in terms of student loans, and there's a lot of other oh, yeah. factors to consider. But I I very much push back against this whole like anti-law school idea, especially because we have some really great law schools nowadays, like CUNY Law and Northeastern. Rutgers has always kind of been a radical law school since like the 1970s. And uh, even, you know, some of the more bougie ones like NYU have started to become more radical. And like, I also don't buy this whole like, you have to get into top five law school sort of stuff. I mean, if you want to go work for like Ballard Spar or something like that, uh, yeah, you probably will need to get into one of those. Or if you want to be like a clerk on the Supreme Court. But like to do sort of good work, if you want to do legal services, if you want to do policy, what's going to matter a lot more is how much you apply yourself through the internships you do and the connections you make and how much you are able to show that this is something you're passionate about because lawyers are very lonely people and <laughs> whenever they're making hiring decisions, they're honestly like 50% thinking like, how much do I have to train this person? That's like 50% mm. of their decision. And then the other 50% mm. is, is this someone who will be my friend because I am so lonely? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I totally agree with you, Emma, about the fact that, like, this idea that you have to go to a top-tier law school is just total bullshit. Bullshit. Um, and mm -hmm. I do think it's true, yeah, if you want to clerk on a federal court, or also if you want to do some of this higher-profile nonprofit industrial complex slash <laughs> social justice <laughs> work, like Southern Poverty Law Center, not to say that they don't do great work, but I, that, places like that are very competitive. And so if that's the kind of place you want to go, going to a higher ranked law school is going to be a good decision. But yeah, I agree. It's a lot more about what internships you go to. I think also choosing a law school in a region where you want to practice is a helpful thing to do. Not necessarily mm. the most important thing to do, but it's going to help you build connections. And that's, you know, in good ways and bad, such a big part of being a lawyer and finding a job. I wouldn't say I'm as pro going to law school as Emma. Um, <laughs> I think it's a really individual decision. And I do, when people ask me about it, I, you know, just say, do you know what a lawyer actually does? And mm. are you prepared to do that for a living? 
because it's really boring a lot of the time. Or I, you know, I mean, so much of it is like bureaucratic and frustrating, and there is a lot of respectability politics, and also just like it's a lot of. I mean, my job, which I think is like a job that people consider to be highly sought after and like, you know, very cool and shiny and that sort of thing. And not to say that it isn't those things in some ways, but it's so boring a lot of the time. (laughs) Um, It's very true. And I also think, you know, like you should before going to law school, I would try to talk to people who are doing the sorts of things that you're interested in doing and just make sure that it's a decision you want to make law school really sucks and being a lawyer is pretty difficult in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. on the other hand i'm really happy i went to law school i think that it's given me insight into things that i wouldn't have known about otherwise it's allowed me to connect with amazing movement work amazing movement people and i i don't know where i would be today if i hadn't gone to law school so i think it's a very individual decision and one that I think people shouldn't make lightly. It's a decision that I made extremely lightly. <laughs> mm. So, I'd like to talk about this a bit as well. I am also very pro-law school. When I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer, though, I looked at how much school cost and I looked at, you know, how much work it was. And I realized that I had never actually worked in the legal field and I wasn't ready to make that commitment. So I went and got my paralegal certificate beforehand and I worked as a paralegal for two years just to make sure that I knew what it was like to work in a law firm and that I actually enjoyed it enough to make a career out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and only then did I choose to go to law school. And now that I'm here, like, yeah, law school sucks, but it is probably the best decision I've ever made. Like, that's great. Yeah, it's awful. Like I woke up this morning, today's we're recording on Saturday. I woke up this morning and did four hours of homework. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and do four more hours of homework. Mm -hmm. I was at school last night until nine doing homework. Yeah, my life is a mess, but like I've, I've never been more fulfilled Mm. because I, I'm, I'm, very excited about the work that I will do. And I am pushing toward a goal that I know that I have and that I know that I want to achieve. And so I think that if you're sure about it, I I wouldn't recommend it to anybody who isn't sure, but like get sure. And if you are, then definitely do it. That said, I think ways of making it more accessible would be I don't know if they even keep the LSAT. Honestly, the skills I learned from studying for the LSAT are not skills that I'm using in law school. Um, so probably come up with a different admission test or, you know, qualification. Also, I mean, free higher education period mm-hmm. would be a good way to democratize <laughs> mm-hmm. law school. Get, um, get rid of the bar. Yes. Yeah, that's well, I was say that. For me. Like <laughs> the bar is garbage. It's, it's, I mean, like they you know, I would say there's certain things like I actually do think, at least for the U.S. legal system, that you do need an additional three years of education beyond college to be sort of prepared to be a lawyer. I know for like me that I really needed the three years to sort of adopt a legal mindset, but there's no the skills where you really with the bar, it's just studying like how much you can debase yourself to accomplish something, (laughs) which I guess is somewhat useful in the legal profession, but like, it's just so silly. It, it, and it, more importantly, it, it privileges a certain kind of person Mm -hmm. and it privileges Mm -hmm. a certain kind of background and education. You know, it's something that I'm actually not that, worried about because I, you know, grew up upper middle class and had a good education. And I feel like I will be able to do it, even though it will be terrible. But there are plenty of people who didn't grow up with that and who have to figure that stuff out in addition to all of the other things in law school. And Mm -hmm. I don't think I think it's I think it's ridiculous. (laughs) Yes, bullshit. I was going to say, when you said you're not using any of the skills that you learned from the LSAT in law school, I would say mm-hmm. the only thing the LSAT prepares you for is the bar exam. And that's all <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I completely agree. Those things should be scrapped. And it's a huge financial burden just to take mm-hmm. the bar exam. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, it was thousands of dollars. Oh, my God. Bar course. No 
how much you pay. Yeah, I paid several thousand for the bar study course. Then there's the what you have to pay to take the exam, what you have to pay to put their particular program on your computer to take the exam. I had to get a hotel, and that was almost $1,000 because I did it in Louisiana, and it's three days of testing over five days. Mm. <laughs> uh, my point was just that there were a lot of costs to taking the bar exam. I had to like stay in a yeah. hotel, uh, which was almost $1,000, and just the costs pile up. So that ended up being several thousand dollars. And I had to take it in Tennessee as well. So. Right. Yeah. Right. That's the other thing is it's like it's all done by state. I know I had a friend who she's in Illinois and her partner's in Utah and she like agonized over which bar exam to take. And Mm -hmm. I think that that becomes such a limiting factor for really bright people wanting to do good shit as well. They're like, I don't, I don't know what to do and where to really take this. Yeah. Especially if you don't have a job before graduating. Fortunately now, I think 26 states, so over half have adopted the uniform bar, which is, you know, not as good as abolishing the bar entirely, but it does make things easier. If you do want to practice in other states, you've got, you know, not all of them to choose from, but you have more of them now and you just have to sit for the one bar um a lot of states do have additional requirements if you take the uniform bar but you're practicing in a state where you didn't go to law school so it's not easy by any means but they have you know made it slightly easier the test i mean not the test but like practicing in states where you didn't go to school so hmm. right that's good small blessings <laughs> um what are ways that people on the left can support good and badass lawyers? We can often be upset at the legal and carceral system, um, which can sometimes lend itself into blind distrust of lawyers. So how can we on the left support y'all as you do this extremely taxing and often thankless work? Honestly, I I don't blame people for distrusting lawyers. I I feel like I'm almost always the person in the room who dislikes lawyers the most, (laughs) especially because with the work I do, the opposing counsel can just be so much. But it is in everyone's best interest when you're working with a lawyer to make their job easier so that they can provide you with the best services. So... I think my number one recommendation, and I don't know if this is just something that's coming out of my field and how much paperwork is involved, but documentation of everything. Like, as soon as you start having a problem, just start saving any papers you get, take pictures, any of that sort of stuff, and then bring in everything to the lawyer. Mm -hmm. Like, even if it's, like, totally out of left field and you're like, I don't know if this is actually going to be useful, like, bring it in anyways, because maybe 90% of it won't be useful, but, like, the 10% that is is going to win your case. Mm. And if you don't have anything, I can't do anything because mm-hmm. law isn't magic, um, mm-hmm. especially when you're working for working class people. It is definitely not magic. Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I agree with everything Emma said. I think um, documentation is super important. And I also, Emma, when you were like, I feel like I'm the person in the room who hates lawyers the most. I feel like if we were both in a room together, it would be <laughs> a pretty even heat. I fucking hate lawyers. <laughs> um, so I think it makes, I distrust them. When I find out someone's a lawyer, it takes me a minute before I'm like, okay, whose side are you on, though? Right, uh, <laughs> right. But I actually encounter the opposite problem because I would say a lot of the meaningful work I do is unrelated to my law job and is more in activism and organizing. And when people find out you're a lawyer, they're like, oh, my God, thank God, a lawyer. And then they both expect you to fix it, which really doesn't align with my Mm. political values, you know, when talking about hierarchy and where power should lie. And also it's a lot of people have a really unrealistic idea of what the law can do. Like Emma said, it's not magic. And I've had, especially recently, like a lot of Antifa people come to me and want me to provide like representation about this. Or they're like, oh, this fascist did that. And it's so fucked up. And just like, yeah, totally is. It's not necessarily illegal or also just 
I mean, I, I could give a million examples. Okay. I think a thing I would ask people to do is not expect that mm. a lawyer is going to be able to swoop in and save the day. And also, like, mm-hmm. consider that that's maybe not what you want. You know, there right. are other ways of doing the work we want to do besides, like, suing the police, even though I love to sue the police. But um, <laughs> there and, are like, other tactics. Also, like consider who that inherently privileges because like I'm not even a lawyer yet I still have one semester of law school left and I already get people doing this to me where they'll be like oh Emma you're a lawyer and I'll be like I'm not a lawyer and they'll be like "Ah, I'm close enough and (laughs) you know I there's this one particular panel I'll never forget it where I was on stage with a good friend of mine, Cayenne Dorishow, who's this amazing advocate who has done, you know, decades of work with prison advocacy, with transgender rights. And we, you know, finished this panel and someone comes up to me afterwards and he's like, so what's it like to be her lawyer? Uh And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I am, first of all, I'm not her lawyer, and I mean, it was, it's wild, you know, that this black trans woman who has been doing the work for decades is just going to be ignored in favor of this, you know, skinny little white girl who isn't even a lawyer yet. And so, like, we should always, like, check our biases, because I think people think, like, oh, I'm being practical by seeking out legal help and legal advice and oftentimes you're actually doing more than that oftentimes you're you're reinforcing these hierarchies that are really counter to the democratic values that i hope that we all care about Mm -hmm. totally all right well i know we've pretty much taken up your entire afternoon to this point (laughs) but is there anything else that y'all want to add or anything you want to plug yes actually i want to invite y'all to look into and all your listeners to look into law for black lives Mm. um which is an amazing like sort of group slash movement that is coming out of black lives matter and the movement for black lives they do amazing work they really put movement work at the forefront of what they do. And they have also been involved in this great, I guess, class workshop that I was privileged enough to be able to attend called uh, the Movement Lowering Boot Camp. And it was, I think, seven weeks. I, I don't remember how long it was, but a number of classes where we would have reading and then get together and discuss movement lawyering and like radical lawyering and I would look into Law for Black Lives and Movement Lawyering Boot Camp if you're interested in, like, utilizing the law as, like, a tool for social justice and radical change. And also the National Lawyers Guild, (laughs) of course. (laughs) Yeah, everyone should join – every legal person should join the National Lawyers Guild. It's a really important group. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also would give a plug for DSA. I'm sure – your listeners hear enough of that, so I won't go into that too much. I'm also on the organizing committee of New York City's Socialist Feminists, um, so make sure to get involved with your local social femi- socialist feminist group. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to one of my professors, uh, Professor Ruth Ann Robson. She writes a lot on the constitutional law professor blog um if you just google that it will come up also uh the url is lawprofessors.typepad.com slash conlaw and she writes some of the best explanations of constitutional law that you'll find she writes in very accessible terms so i often send people to her blog post for explanations about the law and then uh, one book that I think everyone interested in the law should read is The Case Against the Supreme Court, which is one of, I think, the better books out there that fundamentally questions uh, the way that the U.S. legal system works. Mm. Yeah. And uh, if you are in DSA, uh, I just want to make sure that you know that DSA Legal is a resource that is available to you. It's on Twitter and Facebook and all the social media type places, and you can also find it 
on the DSA national website and you can contact them for any sort of legal question or problem you have in terms of DSA. Mm. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you um, for having us. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks. Checking out what y'all do in the future. Yeah. <laughs> add that um, I know you guys both said that you hate lawyers, but I <laughs> am so glad that both of you and Lindsay too are lawyers or on your way to being lawyers because it, as fucked up as the system is, we desperately need people like y'all to oh, be yeah. in there doing the hard work. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening to us today. Um, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Season of the Bee, on Instagram and Facebook, also at Season of the Bee. Uh, donate to us on Patreon, Season of the Bitch. Yes. We have merch coming out. And so check out the stuff and pre-order amazing uh, merch that was designed by Colleen. Happy about that. <laughs> if you have any comments or questions or if you have music and you are not a dude, please <laughs> send it in to us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. All right. Sounds good. Love you guys. Okay. Love, Love you